Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. You ready to get started on a new podcast? Yes, I'm so excited. I traveled through the galactic barrier for this, but I'm starting to feel a little funny about that. Well, as long as your eyes don't turn silver, I think we're probably going to manage all right. Well, yes, welcome to our lovely new podcast where we are going to talk about Star Trek, the original series, episode by episode. I feel um, deeply embarrassed and, and somewhat inadequate when it comes to being described as the expert, but nevertheless, I am the one who has spent a lot of my life watching Star Trek. And um, Kev, I guess that makes you the new guy. Yeah, I'm, as I was going to suggest, we should definitely go through our history. Uh... Yes, I started watching Star Trek with the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie, which I did really like at the time. I still do really like. I don't know what other people's opinions on it are. Uh, I kept watching all three Bad Robot movies when they came out in theaters. And then when the CBS All Access, now Paramount Plus stuff started up, I've just kept up with that. And just because I do like watching space operas, and even if some of the continuity stuff goes over my head, that is fine. Um I, I keep up with Discovery, Lower Decks, and even Prodigy now. Picard I watched a season of, and maybe I'll wait until, uh, if we keep doing this podcast through the 2030s, I and then I get, have an attachment to Picard. I'll circle back to that one. But um, yeah, I do like uh, Star Trek, what I've seen. But of the original stuff, I've seen very little. I've seen the six classic movies when we talked about them on our old Doctor Who podcast. Uh, that's another bit of business should get out of the way after I finish the spiel. Um, I have seen about a dozen Next Generation episodes when preparing to watch the first season of Picard. And I've seen at least Space Seed from this series, which I watched before Into Darkness. I don't know much else. And I don't remember Space Seed that well. I can't remember what else I've caught on TV or what have you. So I, I, I can't say I'm a total for lack of a better term, virgin with Star Trek, even even the post pre-2009 stuff. But I definitely, that's the whole point of doing this. I'm very here to learn and to get my reactions fresh as a new watcher. Fantastic. Um, it, well, needless to say, my uh, experience is the exact opposite of this. So um, not a million miles away from my experience with Doctor Who, but my dad used to be a bit of a closet Star Trek fan back in the 1970s and definitely used the opportunity of having a young son as a chance to be able to watch without too much judgment being laid upon him. And as such, it's simply part of my DNA now. I think I'm right in saying, other than Prodigy, which I haven't started yet, I have watched every single episode of Star Trek except for one season seven episode of The Next Generation, which I'm kind of avoiding watching now just because I've always got one out there for the sake of it. I realize that's incredibly stupid, but nevertheless, that's that's my reasoning. Other than that, I have seen, I think, literally everything. The depths of Enterprise, the heights of Next Generation, every film, every series, you name it, I've been through it. I've got dozens of, uh, I say original, but let's use that word in its least appropriate term. Dozens of the original novels currently sit on my uh, bookshelf. I used to, I even still have somewhere Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise in, in, uh, in uh, paperback A4 format. You name it, I've been through the ringer with Star Trek and back again. I have written two books on Star Trek Voyager, currently available on Amazon, everyone. Please feel free to check them out. Um, needless to say, I am deep, deep into this, and I will never, ever be coming out the other side. So, 
Uh, yeah, Star Trek's a really big thing for me. I started off, uh, because I am very old, uh, with the original series, and then I've just gone through it pretty much in the order that it's been released. I got into uh, Next Generation in the very late 80s and 90s when it came out, then DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, and everything else which has gone forward from that. So, yeah, it's a pretty inescapable part of my life at this point. Yeah, don't sell yourself short. You're an expert. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> very kind of you to say. All right. And uh, yeah, I, the other bit of housekeeping is uh, we'll probably make reference to it here and there. So just get out of the way. We used to have a podcast together called Talking Who to You, which is just for this for the new listeners. Um, that was about Big Finish Doctor Who audio adventures. The audio only Doctor Who stage plays is the best way to describe them, I guess. Uh, yeah, that was we had a lot of fun doing that for some years. And then we ran out of stories we wanted to discuss. And that's the advantage of just doing sticking with Star Trek the series is a lot more people know what that is. And <laughs> we're going to have a lot more guests on this podcast. So it's going to be very different and very fun. But for the first episode, I'm afraid you just stuck with the two of us. We're going to kick yeah. it off. We're going to kick it off with the pilot episode or more accurately, the second pilot episode, which means that we're going to discuss where no man has gone before. And as our tradition from our previous podcast, um, Kev, would you like to give us a, a summary of it, please? Where No Man Has Gone Before features Kirk and Spock and little appearances from Sulu and Scotty, but not many others, uh, as they encounter the Galactic Barrier. There, uh, Lieutenant Commander Mitchell is exposed to some psychic radiation or something or other, uh, I guess we can't use timey-wimey to describe things in this show. Uh, what's, what's the Star Trek term? Is it spacey-wacey? <laughs> <laughs> you can use timey-wimey if it makes you feel better. <laughs> Regardless, um, they encounter something odd, and the, the expertise of Dr. Elizabeth Den Denner correctly identifies it as an increase in psychic ability. Uh, Mitchell's psychic ability slowly grows out of control, as does his ego and his sort of madness. He starts seeing himself superior to everyone else, which leads Kirk and Spock to try to abandon him on a planet. Uh, Mitchell gets wise. He tries to defeat them. Denner also begins to de uh, develop psychic powers. And then Kirk manages to break through the Denmer, appeal to her humanity. She stops Mitchell killing them both. And yeah, and then after some mourning, Kirk and the rest of his crew are on their merry way. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, as you may have gathered, um, this is the second pilot, and we have the opportunity to really get stuck in at the beginning of the series. So it's an unusual one because there are some very obvious things missing from it at this point. But um, Kev, I'm, I'm guessing this is the first time you've ever seen this, right? Yes, and you can guess that correctly 99% of the time. I will make a note when it, it's someone, something I have seen. Um, well, how, how did you we'll, find it then as your, as your first kind of like exposure to how the whole yeah. thing began? Like 1967, here we go. This is the beginning of something which is absolutely like a, a cultural legacy, something which will probably end up you know, in the same category as, as uh, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes or, or uh, Doctor Who or whatever. This is where it all begins. How is it? I mean... I'm frankly like kind of blown away. It's like really <laughs> still really good. It holds up. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for people watching it day and date in the sixties. And I, you, I see on like memory alpha, which I have opened in a tab here, like they screened it at a convention before it aired and fans were like, well, soon to be fans, pretty fans, I guess you could say were lost their minds. Um, standing ovation. I can't believe they 
brought science fiction ideals and thoughts like that onto a big screen, or I guess a small screen then. But um, yeah, it's, and it, you still kind of get that sense. This is something very bold, something new and something kind of daring. Of course, we've had plenty of science fiction on TV since then. And certainly plenty of just Star Trek is so much, but it's still, you still get the sense that it's really trying to push these sort of concepts and ideals that like you don't really see in a lot of other things. And I, I don't know, it just, it's about just, the vibe is what I'm trying to get. The vibe is so perfect from here, from the start. The mood is so perfect. And the story is still very complicated, very character-based. I feel like you could ding this show a lot for, oh, it's it's the inspiration for a lot of things, and it things built upon it, and rather than it starting out great, or the effects are so cheesy. And there's so many ways, and I just kind of had that, the original series sort of fell in the back of my mind. I knew it must be popular for a reason, but just to watch it in action and see how it still very much holds up today in terms of great plotting, great character work, and just great ideas it's playing with. It, it is such a revelation still. I mean, it's really encouraging to hear you say that because in one way that's incredibly validating because as somebody who spent <laughs> you know, a very large amount of my life watching Star Trek, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes it's very easy to become sort of, you know, just accustomed to it and, and you get used to it and you, you sort of make excuses for it or, or you know, so to hear you be able to say that is is kind of really good. I mean, I agree. I think it's. I mean, it's a bit wonky. I think it's fair to say, and there's, there's oh, yeah. definitely uh, there's definitely some stuff to discuss around that. But I think the core of what is going to go on to be the show is really well established early on. I, I know technically this is the second pilot, so there's you know you if you want to argue. Oh, by the way, I made a mistake earlier on. It's 1966. This is the end of 1966, not 1967. Somebody will correct me on that. But anyway, I, I know. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's it's. I know obviously we had the pilot before this, and that covers a certain amount of territory. So not everything is completely new, but nevertheless, it's amazing how much is is in place here. There's just so much, like you used the word confidence, and there's so much confidence behind this. Um, I think in the way that it's presented, in the way that the acting comes across, I think in the way that the script is incredibly kind of, it's really bold in the way that it deals with some kind of things. And, and it's completely kind of offhanded about it as well. Like particularly things like the uh, the discussion of like espers and ESP. It's just like an accepted fact. There's no attempt to at justification for it. There's nobody gives like a baffle gab or technobabble explanation for it. It's just an accepted part of it and the script just gets on with dealing with that being an aspect of how life is. And it's kind of really refreshing to have that without the necessity to have some kind of, oh, yes, you know, when we discovered that humans could do X, Y, and Z or whatever. It's just like, yeah, this is part of your life, you know, and it just expects the audience to be up to speed with these things. It expects it to, the script expects the audience to be able to keep pace. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons it feels kind of very fresh. There isn't that sense that every detail has to be laid out. It's it's drawing in broad strokes. There's no question about that. But what it's drawing and what it's trying to talk about in, in, in terms of arrogance and ego and power and all these kind of uh, other things, 
a lot of that kind of science fiction detail is is kind of background. And that's a very kind of old-fashioned approach to science fiction. It's very kind of Silver Age. It's even, maybe even older than that, it's kind of sort of time machine-y, where the time machine isn't the point. The discussion of, uh, you know, class and society and, and socialism, that's really the point of the time machine. This is kind of trying to do the same. I'm not trying to compare the two in terms of their literary merit, but it's that same thing whereby you, the, the sci-fi concepts are there in order to allow a discussion of something else rather than them being the most important thing that's on screen. I just have to point out that you, when you talk about things the audience had to take for granted and you point out the ESP element and not the fact that these are people on a spaceship traveling the universe. <laughs> well, well yeah, there, there's that too. <laughs> I, just, I just think it's good to keep it in perspective. It's like, obviously science fiction had existed before here. Of course. I mean, John Carter is multiple generations old at this point. But at the same time, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the USS Enterprise. Like, it's interesting to think about how Star Trek is so baked into our culture, generationally baked into our culture. I'm sorry the stat is going to make you feel old, JG, but my <laughs> mother was one years old when this aired, and my dad had not yet was about to turn one in a couple months. That is... Thanks, Kev. <laughs> just to emphasize, this is a really old show. It's just so, like, they have no memory of life before Star Trek. The people who birthed me, and I am... Uh, at an age where I could have children. I mean, that's still a wise in the future for me. But like, so there's just so many generations. So you could feasibly, there could be three generations of people who all lived after the show came out. It's, it's that is just making me think about how, yeah, not only the confidence to not just have that one with Reagan, but the, the whole premise to present it as something that would have been radical at the time. And just, yeah, they're they're on a spaceship. They're exploring planets. This planet has a service station on it they need to fix, as which is part of the ploy to get him down there. Uh, going to the barrier makes you go crazy and get psychic powers. It's just all matter of fact. And even the things like the whole psychic powers thing is not known to the characters at first, like some of the other stuff. It's still not surprising to Kirk. Uh, Shatner doesn't seem very like flapped or astonished by this happening, more just concerned for his friend. It really get you right into this world of anything can happen in this totally far out premise. Oh, it absolutely does. And again, I think that confidence that comes from the cast and the way that they just kind of unflappably deal with stuff is is a really key element to why this works well. You're talking about, you know, kind of the, the, the sort of a little bit of, uh, sort of sci-fi history there. But if you compare something like Star Trek, which is, you know, people on a spaceship flying around and having these adventures, it still feels really distinct from kind of like the old Buck Rogers or Dan Dare or any of those kind of adventures, which sort of maybe dated from like the 30s or the 20s. There's something about the way that Star Trek presents itself. I mean, there are obviously there are. I mean, this is kind of about this, but there are going to be much bolder examples of it, you know, in terms of these moral fables, in terms of the way that um, that it's trying to communicate a particular point of view. And I think one of the one of the dangers when we talk about Star Trek is is kind of separating the the kind of well, particularly the Gene Roddenberry received wisdom about the show, but also the fan received wisdom about the show and what the show is. And there's definitely going to be a lot of discussions around that, especially when we get to Space Seed. But it, it does have this ability to simply expand 
what it is that science fiction did in the 1960s. We're putting sort of putting Doctor Who to one side because there's no crossover between Doctor Who and Star Trek in the 1960s. The kind of the key text of American science fiction in, in the 1960s is the Twilight Zone. And like Star Trek, it does consist of morality plays, but they're very, very different in character. And if you take something like the old kind of, yeah, the Buck Rogers and, and all that kind of stuff, or, or Flash Garden, those sort of 20s and 30s serials, they're kind of, you know, it's pulpy Saturday morning kind of fun, but there's no, other than, than Bing the Merciless is evil, there's no great moral underpinning. There's no real attempt to discuss anything, you know. And, and what makes Star Trek such an interesting proposition is it kind of takes those moral parables from Twilight Zone and it takes that kind of pulpy action from the likes of Buck Rogers and combines them into something which just works. And there is something for all, you know, I mean, again, because Star Trek has such a long cultural legacy, like you pointed out, it has this, it, you know, you can point to cheesy effects or corny acting or, or you know, everybody shaking about in the bridge or whatever. That's all fine, but there still is, and I think what this episode really makes clear, there's still something irreducibly good about it. It, it, it ought, in many ways, it kind of almost ought not to work. And the 60s are going to be littered with shows, sci-fi shows, which just don't work. But there's something about this combination of writing and approach and acting and style that just works and it's there it's genuinely compelling to watch this and it's really weird to say that of this this kind of this kind of show which has such a you know such a wonky reputation but there's something really compelling about this episode to go back to those fans giving the pre-screening a standing ovation at a sci-fi convention i think i mean just to almost speculate what they're reacting to just to like contrast to like your Buck Rogers and stuff. It's such a serious show. Oh, it takes yeah. everything very straight faced, but not in our very much uh, modern version of serious that I kind of roll my eyes at where just to point out a recent example, you have Batman driving around listening to <laughs> Nirvana and um, <laughs> talking about how broody he is. But instead it's just, um, no, it's, it's just taking these ideas seriously at face value. It is not condescending. It is not, it does not think what it's talking about is childish or silly. It knows it can get depths of emotion and resonance from a, out their premise. And it's not going to blink in the face of taking these things at face value. With Well, it can still be funny and lighthearted and look campy and, yeah, a little silly. Uh, it's still going to take, it's going to have that face on top of it all. And uh, that's, I think, is probably people were responding to and probably why it deserves the respect it gets. Well, absolutely. And what I think what's... You so you obviously alluding to the Batman there, but I think the difference is, is that there's nothing ponderous about this. It's, right. It, it takes itself seriously. It, it thinks of itself as proper drama, but it's not ponderous about it. It just gets on with the business of really efficiently telling the story in about 45 minutes flat. And that's really very appealing as well there's very little uh, fat in this story we get the uh, basic beats of the plot so the enterprise picks up this message it heads out the galaxy it encounters this magnetic storm or whatever it is um, something happens to these two crew members and the rest of the episode is plays out you know dealing with the consequences of that it's it's not high concept 
it's because it's kind of a bit of a struggle to describe it in one sentence without a very large number of commas and or parentheses. But at the same time, it's still a relatively simple concept to understand whilst giving plenty of latitude to explore kind of all these little niches. And I think one of the most interesting things about this episode is the way that it's able to sketch in so much detail with nothing. I think William Shatner and uh, Gary Lockwood have something like five lines between them or six lines between them before he gets hit by the lightning bolt that changes him into this this god. And in that tiny space of time, they have to try and make this friendship look like it's extended back years. And I know there's other scenes in Sick Bay after that where they talk about, you know, Gary setting Kirk up with this blonde from the class and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. But even in, even before that, just before that, you have these incredibly small, compact scenes where the actors and the writing have to sketch in this kind of history of years. And it does it incredibly well. So, I mean, firstly, all credit to um, both actors involved, but also to Samuel Peoples, who, who wrote the story. There's a, 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 an almost Terence Dix level of efficiency, and I mean that as a compliment, um, in the way that all these details are just put in, and it gives... Um, it gives William Shatner and, and uh, Gary Lockwood that space to be able to to find uh, the friendship within it before this, this kind of event occurs. And that happens throughout this episode. It happens with uh, Elizabeth Denner and Sally Kellerman is really good at being able to play those kind of relationships. Shatner is fantastic here, which is not a, a sentence a lot of people expect to hear, but he's really good. Um, and all these details, they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, but they're not lingered on or, or overemphasized. So they just kind of accrete this background and, and it makes the whole environment feel so very. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. It's so just fleshed out, like even with the most fantastical premise possible in 1966, it is just so well, every detail feels right. Every interaction between all these characters even though more than half of them we're not going to see again <laughs> it's just so well established um i think the one last thing i want to talk about big picture first impressions before we get into details of the episode in particular are and you alluded to this before i think shatner and nimoy are incredible in this episode just from the jump and they're not even really given like big star moments like Shatner does get a monologue at the end which as I understand is very typically Shatner monologue <laughs> yeah. what is human nature what is life breakthrough to yourself whatever but um he is yeah I mean even without any one moment I can point to is oh that's an iconic moment I already know through osmosis you can just tell these are people locked into their characters um just the way Shatner's just dramatic way of speaking he has down from the jump and yes, it's easily imitatable and parodiable. I just did it right now. And yet it's effective. It feels like, as a friend pointed out to you, and I mentioned I was watching this, it feels like he is coming up with these words on the moment instead of rehearsing, doing a prepared speech that he rehearsed as he would have as an actor. But in his performance, it feels like he's always struggling for the next word in a way that is both human, but also in a very camera-facing aware increasing the drama way that balance i find so fascinating and uh nimoy has less to do this episode but he's spock it's perfect <laughs> what do you really want no notes he's solely locked in 
Yeah, it's interesting watching Nemo in this episode simply because, you know, he shouts and, and you know, he's smug, particularly during that chess match in the first uh, the first scene that uh, Kirk and Spock have together. He's unbelievably smug and then gets taken down a peg. So he's not quite 100% the character that he's going to be, but at the same time, he also absolutely is. Um, but I, I just kind of, I really want to agree with you on, on Shatner. I think he does such a good job here. Um, you know, and for all that, uh, it's easy to, to, you know, sort of mock what, yeah, I mean, he'll eventually just end up doing an impression of himself when he gets to the movies. But at this point, I mean, you can really see why he's cast. He's incredibly charismatic. I mean, he's a good looking guy. He's got the blonde hair, all the rest of it. Absolutely. I mean, he looks like a 1960s film star. He really does. And he holds the camera. Um, I know that we're not discussing the cage this time out. We'll talk about it when we get to the menagerie. But if you compare and contrast, you know, these two performances, the way that Shatner is able to hold himself, the way that he's able to really just center a scene is... I mean, it's genuinely impressive, but the truth is that um, Jeffrey Hunter, who played Pike in, in, in The Cage, of course, couldn't. He's not a bad actor. He's a perfectly serviceable actor. But Shatner is much, much better at this kind of role. And he has the charisma that can really anchor the small screen. It's, it's something that he struggles with a little bit um, when it comes to the movies. It takes him a little bit of time to kind of upscale his performance. But when you watch him in something like this, you can see how good he is. And yeah, the bit at the end where he's made to kind of clasp his hands together and, and pray to Mitchell, that's not the finest bit of acting I've ever seen. Although I'm guessing it's probably not something that's covered in drama school. But other than that one little moment, he's just incredibly compelling. He holds the screen. Yeah, it's holds the screen. I mean, how else can you describe it? Yeah, he's, my attention is focused entirely on him when he's on screen. And it's just, that's just not for nothing. I mean, it, it, part of it is talent. Part of it is just like the charisma he was born with, but whatever the result is, you just can't deny he is an incredible performance. And, and you just can't imagine, of course, you can't imagine Star Trek without him. He's, we, they've done 80 episodes and six movies and whoever knows how many later appearances as the character. And yet, that that's the reason because he is so just iconic and uh commanding from the jump it's yeah and even like you said like the praying stuff it's you can see him sort of over egging it a bit and all but yet still when he's giving that and it's not even a full monologue it's like the transcript before me it's still just like individual lines about just uh like you were a human once and I know everything, like, you have to break through yourself. Like, I'm paraphrasing. I, I kind of wish I wrote some of those lines down. They were really poetic and well-written, I thought. And Shatner just, he knows the right amount of spice to put on those. Those are lines you shout to the camera. Absolutely. Uh, but I also love the little quiet moment. Like, the, the, the very last line um, yes. in the episode, you know, uh, there's hope for you yet, after, after Spock admits that he also... You know, he felt for, for Gary and what he was going through. And in future episodes, that'll be played for comedy and there'll be a little dee -dee 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 kind of like funny music behind it or whatever. But there's something, and again, you just instantly get that rapport between Shatner and Namoy. Um, but you just, that tiny little thing, he underplays it. And it 
utterly sells the line. It's just that, and it's not mocking. He's, it, it's, it just speaks to the friendship which already exists between them. And it's a tiny, tiny little moment. But it works so well because Shatner goes under rather than over. And yeah, if you're being tortured by God, going over the top is pretty much your. That's pretty much that's, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, but um, but yeah, you're right. And like the, the lines that he's giving to um, Elizabeth Denner, like all that stuff. You know, like be a doctor one more time and all that kind of stuff. It's like there's there's real power in it. He manages to, and it works. That's the thing. You know, the character is able to break through just just enough. So that he can he can help her retain her humanity and and eventually he'll survive the day. It it it's it's really effective and it's I'm kind of grinning here. You can probably hear it in my voice, but it's just it's really compelling. It works so well, and I love I love that Shatner is able to kind of modulate his performance between these big kind of over the top, uh, you know, sort of tortured by a god moments, and then yeah, just those tiny quiet little moments like the very final scene or even the chess scene you know even that is is the same it's like uh, are you, you sure you don't experience any emotions but it's not it's not really played as a joke as such it's just it's just a very kind of casual line between two people who have this kind of very obvious friendship together it works incredibly well just back to like confidence in script and asking the audience to buy in for moment one um not just the fact that a main character in the show is going to be an alien with pointy ears and weird eyebrows who <laughs> doesn't feel emotion. But uh, also the fact that they have such a rapport. It's just, it's just there. They don't need to over-explain it. Like any modern TV pilot would give you this Kirk and Spock meeting. Why wouldn't you start with the Kirk and Spock meeting? You have to see how they uh, became friends. And I mean, I think the J.J. Abrams movie does a good job with that. I think it's fertile territory. We'll see how Strange New Worlds, I guess, uh, goes to the same territory. But there is just something so refreshing about just it's it's already there. And you can you understand it instantly. There's no need to belabor the point and see how they come together when just seeing them together from the start is already so satisfying and explains so much. Oh, absolutely. And again, I, I think it would be inter- it's such an interesting thought experiment, but that rapport between Kirk and Spock, and I mentioned sort of before how quickly um, Kirk and Mitchell have to kind of sketch in their friendship with just a handful of lines as well. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment to see, well, what if it had been Spock which had, uh, who had ended up with like the, the, the superpowers and the silver contact lenses and, and Mitchell had been the one who had gone on. And it, it's not that Mitchell would have been better he clearly wouldn't have been that's and i don't mean that in any way as an insult um but it's just you know you know it's kirk and spock what do you want um but it's it, it it's the way that what i mean is the way that both friendships are sketched in so quickly it's almost kind of equal but one of them falls because of this circumstance and one of them doesn't um but again again it's testament to how good the writing is and how good the performance is that both these friendships need to be put in in such a small space and that they both work. What I think is incredibly conspicuous from a modern perspective is the fact that McCoy is not there because this if this episode is kind of screaming out for him but instead um, you know we have we have Dr. Piper um, who will not be featured again in uh, in in this uh, in this podcast? And he's not bad, but he's just present. 
Whereas almost everybody else in the regular cast feel like they have earned their place there. He feels like he's turned up to do an episode of Columbo or an episode of, you know, whatever. And and there's no, that that extra little thing isn't there from uh, Paul Fix, uh, who played uh, Piper. Uh, it's just not quite there. Even, yeah, I mean, how many lines does George Takai get in this? Like four, six? Again, it's, it's almost nothing. But he has, yeah, he has presence. And the same with James Doohan. You know, he, James Doohan will go on to do absolutely terrible things when it comes to the movie. But, like, he has presence here. He feels like he's invested in his character. Um, whereas Paul Fix just is doing a, like an episode of the week. And in a way, you can't really blame him because there's no particular sense that maybe this would be just another dragnet or wagon train or, or bonanza or whatever. You know, fair enough. You turn up, you do your thing, you get paid and you go away. Might have been a bit of a misjudgment in this case, though. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to say how much is like knowing where these actors will be down the line and not. But yeah, I I did get the sense that yeah, you see George Takei and he pops it just so much from just the few lines. He gets to do the little thought experiment about start with a penny, double it every day for a month, you become a millionaire, which is I mean just I I love like putting little like stories and idioms like that into scripts and then um yeah he he really shines and paul fix is like oh it's, he's the grumpy doctor character and then he's just kind of out he's it's, it's a very stock type and he does a fine job and he is out that's <laughs> 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 what you're saying it's like not uh he just doesn't grab you the way uh deforest kelly does apparently apparently roddenberry wanted deforest kelly for that role and there's i don't know a scheduling thing or a studio interference thing but was able to obviously get him for the rest of the run. And so, I don't know, maybe that's part of Paul Fix's performance is just knowing he's not long for this world when DeForest Kelly's waiting in the wings. But obviously not all the guest stars are bad. I definitely want to talk about, it is insane that this is Gary Lockwood and Sally Kellerman as our two main guest stars. <laughs> right. Who, a couple years later, he would be in 2001 A Space Odyssey and she would be in several Robert Altman movies. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, yeah. She's uh, yeah. Hotlip Sulahan. I mean, for goodness sake. You know, it's just incredible. What a cast. Yeah. And you, you can, they deserve it. You can tell from this episode. They're both giving incredible performances. I love Gary Lockwood's performance in this. I think it is brilliant. He does such a good job trying to play this kind of over the top um, you know, character who's been imbued with godlike powers. I've got to say, those contact lenses are incredibly effective for how simple oh, yeah. they are. They're really great. Look, there's that really. I think it's at the end of Act One. You get the where he, the contact lenses are first revealed, and it kind of freeze frames. It zooms in, and then sort of fades to black, and then just the contact lenses remain on screen. It's such a weird, such a weird kind of thing, such an odd artifact by by sort of modern standards. But it, they are incredibly effective, and the way that he acts as this character, the way that he brings himself across, and the um, yeah, the arrogance, the disdain that he has for humanity, the whole thing is just. I love his performance in this. He really does give that impression of somebody who's just been completely corrupted by this thing that's happened and has no interest in justifying himself to anybody for any reason. Even, you know, even... 
even to the extent of kind of killing his friend, even to you know his his supposed uh, equal in 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 dinner, he just doesn't care, and that the arrogance and the the sheer bravado that he has in that role is really something. I love Gary Lovell's performance here. Yeah, it's he is just incredible. Like I love like the sort of slide to madness. See, like every step is very clearly defined. I. I just was transfixed by that scene in the hospital bed where he's talking about Kirk and their past. And then Shatner also plays that scene beautifully, just slowly realizing how wrong something is with his friend. It is so, it's just such a good job building dread. And the script is so good at that level, just on a pacing, on a structure level. And, and by the end, he's just doing this like God routine, almighty, all powerful, huge ego. And the, the whole, transformation works because every step along the way is just heightened a little heightened a little more and i think lockwood totally gets how to do that in less expert hands it's like the simpsons gag with the foot being switched from evil (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah you just gotta flip it back to good instead this is very much a character arc and it's one that is almost entirely carried by performance well absolutely and although i do want to give a shout out to um james goldstone as the director here because there's a couple of genuinely really creepy moments here like when he's speed reading in the hospital uh, Mm. sorry in the sick bay and he turns to the camera and just looks directly at kirk it's like it's a that's a really powerful moment it packs a real wallop and it's it's genuinely quite creepy with the silver eyes and just the expression on 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 his face and like again it's another brilliant performance from gary lockwood but it's completely wordless it's just this this way that he looks around at the camera and like kirk almost recoils from it it's it's so effective and just those little moments as well work so effectively in establishing this threat which we don't understand and you know like godlike aliens and all that kind of stuff it's going to go on to become such a cliche uh of star trek you know we're going to have apollo further down the line in the in the original series we'll get to q when we get to uh, the next generation and all the rest of it you know there's plenty of godlike aliens in star trek to go around but this is the very very first time that we properly come across it as a concept and it's so effective and because it works so well here it's very easy to understand why uh it's something which is returned to not just in terms of being able to um sort of power the drama but the way that it's able to power this kind of ethical debate as well you know this again that that whole speech that kurt gets at the end about you know morality and, and you know did you hear him laugh when he talked about compassion and all that kind of stuff you know there's a real drama to it and and so it's a, a you know the the power that this character has is very much the driver of the script it, it doesn't just exist for the sake of having a bad guy to fight off against there's, there's a proper kind of uh, maybe moral interrogation is overstating it but there's a genuine attempt to dig into something beneath that and that makes the whole thing work and again the performance the direction the way that it all comes together it's just incredibly effective and it helps his having fun too he's not just like <laughs> oh yeah I, I, the go-to for like i feel godlike powers removed from humanity everyone has bugs beneath him is to go very cold and distant but I mean, this is a script thing, not performance thing. But he creates the grave for Kirk as he's about to kill him. That's just <laughs> such a ballsy uh, power play. But then yeah, Lockwood's like embodying that. He is like gloating. He is like smiling. He is, and it's just it's just 
makes it so much more creepy, I feel like, just to have that threat be active and malicious. And I, even yeah. though it's also high-minded, yeah. Absolutely. That that line that he has, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that line he has, I've been contemplating the death of an old friend. As the way that he delivers that is just delicious, you know. He's really leading into it. But like you said, he's clearly enjoying it. You know, he doesn't he doesn't want to have to be bothered with this. You know, 30 minutes ago, he was, you know, like, well, when can I go back on duty and there's nothing wrong with me? Now he's contemplating the death of an old friend and, and relishing it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lovely line. And again, it would be so easy to overplay that, to just like really throw it to the back rows, but he doesn't. He slightly pulls it back there. Well, well, he does eventually start doing that, but just on that line, he holds it back a little bit, and it and it's so much more effective for that. And then, of course, our other guest star, Sally Kellerman, I mean, she's incredible. <laughs> I just, I love, she's, of course, the, sort of the voice of empathy for uh, Mitchell, and she's trying to stick up for him and find the goodness in him. It just makes the fact that she has to be the one to kill him all the more tragic, along with Kirk, of course. It's, yeah, but I don't know. It's obviously it's a very role a woman would get in the 60s, the empathetic voice of reason. But I, I mean, it doesn't detract from her performance. She's still very good. And I, I love that exchange she has with Kirk when she's about to go mad with power and such, and he talks her out of it. I think she is also like playing that, trying to have that sort of arrogance of, uh, Lockwood's playing, but then playing the insecurity beneath that as well. Just really effective stuff. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you're like, you like you say, you know, that's the kind of typical role that women would get cast in the, in the 60s for, the empathetic voice of reason. But, you know, that's basically what Deanna Troy is in The Next Generation as well. So it takes a while for the needle to shift on that. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, it is effectively played. And I think the fact that Sally Kellerman is so obviously a good actor really makes a difference because it I think as scripted, it does have the potential to lapse a little bit into, um, you know, those those kind of cliches. And there's one moment during the briefing scene um, where it slightly tips over that way, where she's going, oh, no, th- you know, there's nothing wrong with him. He's not evil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like, like uh, you know, she's been in the League of Gentlemen. Um, but um, it's just so saved by the performance that she gives and and so it kind of manages to overcome those kind of inherent 60s kind of oh well she's the woman she must be the empathetic one but because at least to a certain extent she's not the only empathetic one you know Kirk has real empathy towards what's happening to his friend eventually he's forced to make a difficult choice but he is still very empathic um, and right at the end even Spock admits that he, he felt for what was happening to her so I mean, it is the case that she's there, but the strength of the performance definitely overcomes that. But the fact that there are other empathetic characters within the episode as well slightly mitigates against too much of a kind of sexist reading of that, I think. I, I absolutely agreed. And then to bring it back to Kirk and empathy, I, I can't exactly say it was a revelation or a shock to me because once I came to conclusions, like, well, of, of course he would have to be empathetic because otherwise the show wouldn't be as memorable as it was if he was just the He-Man type. And I, I've seen the movies, so I do know a lot about Kirk and that Shatner can bring all the empathy to the role. But I just do think that is such an integral part to why he works and why the show works. That despite all the parodies of Kirk being womanizing, two-fisted, etc., 
uh, he is still like so human and empathetic beneath it all. I yeah, I just and this really reemphasize that like of course he is. He has he, that just makes him such a good leader and such a good center of this show. And I love those scenes where he's agonizing what to do with a Mitchell, and Shatner is just again giving a great performance in those moments. Well, he really is. That I love that scene in the briefing room. Uh, where they have where where he he says to Spock, um, you know, I don't need uh, I forget the exact line, but I don't need judgment. I need recommendations. And Spock just goes, yeah, there's this planet. You can maroon him or you can kill him. And mm-hmm. and and Kirk just says, absolutely not. And then eventually says, set course for Delta Vega. Um, and it's it's such a kind of key scene because it's that one where. You know, he he wants to be able to save his friend. He completely understands um, that this person that he's had, you know, years and possibly decades of experience with is going through an absolutely unimaginable trauma. And yet, ultimately, he has to make the right call for the sake of the ship, for the sake of the rest of the crew. And so he does it. And even though he clearly doesn't want to be told what the right thing to do is by Spock, when he hears it, he still makes the right call until then, then they go to Delta Vega. And again, it speaks to kind of, in just a tiny, tiny number of lines, it speaks to this real strength of kind of friendship and, and, and professionalism and respect between these two characters. But it shows Kirk at his kind of best. He understands, but he has to make the difficult call. I think he actually has a line saying, you know, uh, you know I'm, not here to, I'm not here to listen to the nice things. I'm, I'm here to make the right calls. Uh, a little bit earlier on in the same scene. Um, But here, you know, he gets that line, but here we actually see it in action. Um, But it's not belabored and it's not overly emphasized. It's just, this is the information you have. These are the choices you have to make. This is, this is, this is the hard call and he makes it. And again, it's a lovely performance for Shatner. The anger that he has at Spock, even although he knows that Spock is right. And then eventually that sort of acknowledgement, okay, right, well, we're going to have to go and do this then. It's a phenomenal scene. Yeah, And again, it's just confidence in writing and confidence in acting, trust in the audience. Like they don't need to over it. Set course for Delta Vega is all the words you need to just get 10 different thoughts across. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't have any more major things to really tackle here, but I was just one thing I want to talk about back to sort of directing and how effective the sort of silver eye contacts are. This is just another shot that I found really effective, and I was delighted to find out on Memory Alpha uh, how they did it, where they get uh, the three of them, I believe it's like Shatner, Nimoy, and uh, Lockwood get into an elevator, and then it stays on them as it, the elevator moves and goes to the bridge, and of course, they don't. They didn't build a working elevator. What they did was they built a wall, a hallway that they could then, inside the bridge, that they can then pull away and reveal the bridge, and uh, just that that craft work. I love it. Uh, I love hearing stories about how to do an in-camera effect like that, just through just the simplest stuff. Oh yeah, no, that all that stuff is brilliant. And you know that I mean, we haven't really talked about things like the set, so I suppose well, it'll be something that we get to later. But right from the word go, that bridge set is really something. I mean, apart from having Kirk in the middle and that kind of commanding position of authority, it's like it just really 
works as a set. The camera can get into it. You get lots of different shots and, and, and reaction shots in it. And like you say, just like something as simple as walking from a corridor into the turbo lift, from the turbo lift into the bridge, it's just incredibly effective. And and those those little details, those attention to details is, is one of the things I think that really sort of marks Star Trek out as a show in, in the era that it's made in. It's not being tossed off. This isn't something casual. People are really paying attention to the small details. The sound effects, the way that the doors sound when they slide open, right from the word go again, that's exactly what we expect it to be. You know, that sound effects are still in use in Futurama to this very day. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just amazing how much thought and detail has has gone into the tiniest moments in the show yeah it's and and that that's why this has lasted as a franchise honestly it's i mean i think that is what sort of sets us apart i'm i'm no expert on uh pre before i was born science fiction by any stretch imagination but I have to imagine the care and not just the money but of course like but like just the attention the detail put into sets direction execution of effects like even if it seems cheesy today it just feels like such a far cry from like a buck rogers serial where just it's all uh, just shot on the cheap on a back lot it's just so i guess it is not inexpensive not expensive and it is on a back lot but you know what i mean it's just so yeah. much it feels so much like a fully realized ship in a fully realized world in a way as far as I know, everything else around it at this time was not really. And taking this sci-fi, again, taking it seriously and confidently is probably, if I were to guess, what led the show to have such a lasting impression. No, I think that's completely fair. And I think the other thing it's worth mentioning, just before we kind of leave that subject, is, um, and again, it's a very easy thing to miss, but it's in color. And it really, really is in color. You know, it pops. Everything is bright, primary colored aesthetics. Everything stands out. And of course, because it's the 1960s, it's this bold era of new technology, new sci-fi, new approaches, new horizons, new frontiers. Everything about the aesthetic of Star Trek at this point screams new. There's even that line that... um, that Gary gets at one point where he said, "Oh, I've been reading all these long-haired texts that you keep you keep recommending to me." You know, it like 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 as if three hundred years from now people are going to be referring to proper texts in this kind of hippie context. But you know, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the history that it's coming from. But everything about the dynamic, everything about the aesthetic, the way the show is set up, screams new. If you compare it to you know the Twilight Zone, which is this kind of moody black and white, you know, thoughtful, um, often, you know, very contemplative piece of science fiction, just purely on the way it looks, the way that Star Trek just jumps off the screen still. I mean, I still have a slight problem with the um, CGI version of the special effects just because I'm so used to having spent most of my life not having seen that. And I, I'm not going to get into a whole thing about traditional effects versus replacement CGI. That's a conversation for another episode. But just the way that the sets are, the uniforms are, the planet is. It's that lovely insert shot where you've got this map painting and then down in the bottom right-hand corner, 
there's just a little bit of live action which is inserted, which is incredibly well done by 1966 standards. All that kind of stuff. It screams modernity. It screams 1960s progress and, and sort of that forthright kind of bold attitude that America had. And, and, and it's absolutely crucial to, to the show. It's, it's a, a very kind of powerful aesthetic. I definitely also noticed when it would cut to I, I, these sort of remastered CGI effects, and I got annoyed every time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. We are Yeah, and I haven't even seen the original before, and uh, I, I, I don't know if all the energy to bring it up every episode, but at least I want my opinion on the record as soon as possible. That ugh, why? <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, it's. You're right. It just feels so modern. It feels so alive and just popping off the screen in a way like nothing else is before. And the, the use of colors, even when we don't really have the color coordination going on yet. I, were there blue and red shirts? I, maybe there were a few, actually. Yeah, because uh, uh, Sally Kellerman had a blue shirt. It's just Spock is also in yellow, and I think it's smart that he gets to have a different color from Kirk from here on out. Um, but yeah, it's just such distinctive uniforms and consoles and buttons and uh, things that with sparks that fly out of them. It just it just looks so good. They really put their time and care and energy into this craft. And the results speak for themselves in terms of a franchise that has lasted uh, 50 plus years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, as you say, the fact it's lasted that long kind of says it all, really. Um, yeah, what an amazing, <laughs> amazing pilot episode. It was God, I'm so looking forward to having this whole discussion with you. It's going to be great. Uh, but I think we can probably wrap it up there for Where No Man Has Gone Before for the time being and move on to our recommendation section. So, Kev, what have you got for us this week? Uh, first, I guess a little context. Uh, if you hadn't listened to our previous podcast, we do recommendations at the end of every episode and that are not related to Star Trek in this case. Uh, just things that we have enjoyed since our last time recording that we want other people to learn about. So, this week, a little bit of a brag. I'm recording this far in advance of the premiere just because of the way schedules lined up. And so, a week ago, I was at the Coachella Music Festival in uh, Indio, California. And I saw many great artists there, but there's just one who was a discovery for me that I want to be discovered for everyone else. It is the country with a question mark artist Orville Peck. he is a beautiful singer. Um, of course, I have the advantage of seeing him live, but listening to his recorded stuff afterwards, it's no less diminished. He has the voice of an Elvis or Roy or Orbison, this very classical 50s uh, bass that is just so melancholic and beautiful uh, with a little bit more modern instrumentation behind him. Definitely a bit of rock, bit of a country twang to it too. Um, I think, yeah, the, Wikipedia says genre is country alternative rock. I would definitely say the instrumentation, at least, definitely lies between those two on the spectrum. It's just hard to define, but and yet because it's so hard to define, that's what makes him so unique and special. And also worth noting, he is an openly gay man who sings about men in love a lot of the time and other queer themes. It is... And his, his lyrics, they can be very soulful, they can be very melancholic, they can be very impactful. They can also be very light and silly. They can be both of those at the same time. Uh, he played a great number in his set about truck drivers following me, 
falling in love and the phrase driving me crazy. I came up in the refrain over and over again. And despite all that, Jesus still managed to really move me. He is, God, he's fantastic. Just please check out Orville Peck. He's a really good uh, performer. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, my recommendation has a slight Star Trek overlap in the sense that it involves Chris Pine. Uh, I'm going to recommend the movie All the Old Knives, which is on Amazon. Um, yeah, it stars uh, Chris Pine and uh, hopefully I will get this pronunciation right, but uh, Tandewe Newton. And it's um, basically about two CIA agents uh, who were involved in uh, trying to rescue a plane which had been hijacked. Uh, it ended very badly with all the passengers and the terrorists being killed. But there was a sense that more information came to light and there may have been a mole. Now, I realize that makes it sound like an incredibly kind of cliched uh, sort of spy thriller. But what's really appealing about this movie is the fact, firstly, that it's played in a very kind of old-fashioned way. It's a bit sort of uh, John le Carre. So it's, it's very slow and it's thoughtful and it's really invested in the idea of spycraft. So it's much more sort of Tinker Tailor Soldier spy than it is James Bond. And it's got this really lovely rhythm um, between the present, which takes place in a restaurant, whilst the two lead characters sort of basically run circles around each other and what actually happened in the past back in 2012 when this plane was hijacked. It's got a phenomenal cast. I mean, apart from Pine and Newton, uh, you've also got uh, Lawrence Fishburne on hand and you've got Jonathan Price, who unbelievably underplays. I know it seems unlikely, but it's true. And he's fantastic. It's such a great film. It's very low-key. It's not an action piece at all. It's very thoughtful and very considered. It's not completely flawless, but it's a really genuinely interesting attempt to do a sort of old-style Cold War thriller for a sort of modern age. And it's just incredibly watchable. Um, like uh, Tandewe Newton and Chris Pine have an amazing chemistry together. They are really something. And just like Chris Pine is not somebody I imagine being a good character actor, but he's really good at it. He's just a million miles away from kind of the usual, yeah, like Captain Kirk two-fisted sort of roles. You know, he's just got this really thoughtful considered. He's ever so slightly cast against type, which was really effective choice as well. Um, and yeah, it's just this really great movie. It's not long. I think it's like one hour 40. It's really refreshing to see a movie with a short runtime. It does what it does, gets in, gets out, and it's done. So that's my recommendation for this week, All the Old Knives. All right. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for listening to our first episode of Talking Trek to You. Uh, here are the plugs you're about to be very familiar with if you keep listening with us. Uh, you can email us, you at gmail.com. If you do, we'll answer your questions on air if we have time when we receive them. Uh, and then we can also reach us on Twitter, at TalkTrekToYou. I am on Twitter, at KevKoser, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I frequently guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser. You can find more JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And he has the podcast Beatles Stuffology, where he and future guests on the show, fingers crossed, Andrew Deacon, talk about Beatles stuff, song by song. Um, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast you, you use, podcatcher you use. Help other people find the show and gives us good feedback. And yeah, I think that's about it.
Yeah, I think so. So fantastic. We are off the mark with Star Trek. Now, as you might have gathered, if you know much about Star Trek, and you probably do if you're listening to this, um, Where No Man Has Gone Before is the second pilot, but that's not quite the case in terms of broadcast order. So as a general rule, we are going to be sticking to the broadcast order, but we wanted to kick this one off with Where No Man Has Gone Before, particularly since it has so many odd little quirks, which aren't really going to be a case of the series going forward. So that means the next time out for our next episode, we are going to be discussing the man trap. So from there on out, we're pretty much going to be going in broadcast order. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.